there are only so many sacraments in total, and even fewer that are actually repeatable. The sacrament of confession is one of those repeatable sacraments, yet so frequently people neglect to actually indeed repeat it. This is quite possibly due to a lack of proper catechesis when it comes to learning about this great gift, which I will attempt to remedy in this brief article. What is sin? In order to begin, a proper understanding of sin is necessary. Most generally, evil is a privation of a due good. There are multiple categorizations of evil, resulting from the various categorizations of good. The simplest division is into physical evil and moral evil, where physical evil is when there is a privation with regards to something. Moral evil on the other hand is discussed when there is an evil with reference to someone. For example, a deer that is missing a leg has been afflicted with a physical evil, while a human who murders commits a moral evil. Further, for there to be a moral evil, there must be a free act of a rational creature. A random genetic mutation resulting in the loss of that deer's leg is not a free act, it simply happened. Another way of getting to the core of this distinction is in the trifold division of the kinds of law, each of which can be transgressed. There are laws of nature, such as that deer should have four legs. There are also laws of art, in the manner of speaking within the Aristotelian philosophical tradition, a bridge that does not actually support cars driving across it would transgress one of these laws of art. That bridge is not doing what it was designed to do. And lastly are the laws of morality, when broken, one describes this as the blameworthy actions of a person, such as killing someone. These actions are what are properly called peccatum or sin. Associated with all of this are vices, which are simply bad habits. These dispositions can be a bad inclination to sin, in Latin, malatitia, but it is not necessary to actually confess the disposition properly speaking, since there is no sin there. However, regular confession will allow one to expose these vices, or dispositions to actually sin in certain ways, and allow one to understand which virtues should be practiced. For example, someone who struggles with gluttony should practice temperance, which is not necessarily about food but moderation in all pleasures of life, as a general virtue. There are many distinctions of kinds of sin, which are not actually necessary for adding to your confession, but are helpful as they show the multitude of possibilities for how to sin. For example, there are sins of commission and omission. When one commits an action, one goes against a negative precept. For example, if one steals when told do not steal, one sins. A sin of omission is on the other hand associated with positive precepts, and is when one does not perform an act that should be performed. For example, if one is told go to Mass and does not, one sins by omission. There are many possibilities for the object of sin, God is indirectly the object of all sin, as one turns away from the perfect ultimate good, but some sins are more directly against self, for example, gluttony referenced earlier, or against neighbor, murder. There are also sins of the flesh and sins of the spirit, at this point one can pause to reflect on which is graver, spoiler, the answer is spiritual sins. For example, pride is a spiritual sin while gluttony is a sin of the flesh. There are sins of not only deed, but also word, gossip, or thought, lust. There are sins of excess, eating too much, and sins of defect, eating too little. And of course, there is the distinction between mortal and venial sin, dependent on the matter of the sin and the knowledge of the agent. So, what actually is sin though? What possible definition can actually account for all of these possibilities? The best answer is perhaps Aquinas is simply a bad human act, how can you forget that? However, there is also the definition given by Augustine, as a word, deed, desire, contrary to the eternal law. In this image, it must be pointed out there are some sins that are not merely materially bad, killing, but are truly terrible because of their nature to lead to other sins. These are the famous capital sins or seven deadly vices or however one chooses to label them. 
These are sins whose end, whatever their goal is, has a special unique power in moving humans to commit other sins in order to attain that end, as well as giving birth to other sins. For example, a many who is truly moved by gluttony may commit murder or robbery in his quest for a perfect cake, but will also have the experience of subsequent mental dullness and incapacity to reason due to his obsession with food. Theology of Confession An important preface must be made to any discussion of the sacrament of confession, and that is a brief discussion of the universality of man's concern with sin and guilt. People often may argue today that confession is unnatural or weird. Why do you need to actually seek some sort of remedy for your sins? Going to a priest for all of this, that is just awkward and unnecessary. In response, a survey of human history will show that we are in a unique position in time where people are no longer as concerned with sin and guilt as they once were. This is not to say people are immoral, or ancient people were somehow more moral. But it is to say that they at least had a stronger awareness of a supernatural dimension connected to their actions. The very architecture of the Agora in ancient Athens, see Blood on the Altar, written by Gunnel E. Croth in 2005 for this point, reflects the sheer quantity of animal remains that would be used during festivals and sacrifices. The calendar of ancient Egypt was structured around the festivals atoning for sin and remedying the relationship with the gods. Yet in ancient Rome, one of our earliest pagan sources for Christianity points out that the temples were being closed with the advent of Christ and the massive economic impact this was having, all due to a new theological system. With Catholicism though, we no longer are dependent on Zeus sending down a thunderbolt to be interpreted as a sign that the city will not be destroyed. Rather, we have the verbal affirmation of the priest, or indeed denial. Our sins are first and foremost always against God, as will be discussed more, but through God walking on earth, and the priest acting in persona Christi we now have sure assurance. And priests can and do say no. If you have not made a true and contrite confession, this does happen. As a sacrament. In order to understand the sacrament element of confession, a full sacramental theology course would be needed, but a few preliminary observations can nevertheless be touched on briefly. In Latin, sacer is a word used for holy things, think of the English word sacerdotal, and the mentum root is used for describing instruments or means. So putting these two definitions together, we have an instrument of holiness. All sacraments are signs. There are many examples of signs in our lives, from stop signs to traffic lights. Yet, the difference between these and the sacraments is that we believe the sacraments are efficacious signs as the catechism definition puts it. Imagine if you pulled up to a stop sign, and the stop sign somehow made you stop. That is about as close as you will get to understanding the efficacious nature of the sacraments. When it comes to confession, the words of the sinner are a sign of the renunciation of sin that takes place within the heart. The absolution of the priest is a sign of the heavenly forgiveness of God the Father. This leads to the subsequent explanation of the three stages of all sacraments, which are given fancy Latin terms and which will be utilized mainly for precision and separation. Each one of these stages kicks off so to speak the following stage, and although we call them stages one does not necessarily want to think in temporal terms, such as at minute two of the confessional the rocket phase of stage two ignites, although the analogy of a rocket is indeed helpful. Stage one is the sacramentum tantum. This is the sign or sacred rite itself, such as the external acts of the penitent and the priest in confession in particular. Interestingly, this sacrament does not involve any necessary physical objects, although the stole the priest might wear or the confessional booth are images of what one will typically see. Stage 2 is the reset sacramentum. Here we have the sign and the reality signified, which in this case is the sinner's actual repentance. We move from just having external actions to actually having something that takes those actions into an efficacious sign, which leads to Stage 3, the res tantum. This is the reality itself, in this case forgiveness. 
all of these stages lead to there actually being an effective forgiveness. All sacraments likewise have two major elements, called the matter and the form which are notions taken from the Aristotelian philosophy adopted by the Church through figures such as Thomas Aquinas. A simple example of this would be a statue, where the marble utilized is the matter and the figure imprinted on the statue is the form, although more can indeed be said here. With the sacrament of confession, what takes this sacrament from just some simple confession of sins to the sacrament is the form of the priest saying I absolve you from your sins in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. The matter of this sacrament is slightly more complicated, and is divided into the remove and proximate matter. The remote matter is what is being brought to the confessional, namely the sins committed after baptism. The proximate matter is the acts of the penitent, as opposed to something like water in baptism. These are fittingly divided into three parts, contrition, confession, and satisfaction. We shall go through these shortly. Before we get to that part, a brief technical question with theological significance must be answered. Do we need to go to confession? Absolutely speaking, no. Each one of the sacraments as signs fits onto a stage in our life, and only one sacrament is truly necessary, namely baptism, which is connected to the stage of birth into the supernatural life of grace. Yet, just as the Eucharist is connected to food, which should be repeated, confession is connected to healing and thus likewise should be repeated. As it says in Matthew 19, I do not say to you seven times but seven times seventy. We must constantly be seeking new conversion and healing, especially when we fall into mortal sin after baptism, which in some sense kills us. We cannot be reborn through baptism, but that mortal wound can be healed before it is too late. Lastly, what is our definition of confession? A fitting one is a twist on the general definition of the sacraments given in the Catechism. It is a sacrament of the new law instituted by Christ in the form of a judgment for the remission of sins committed after baptism through sacramental absolution granted to a contrite person who confesses these sins as a virtue. A short side tour is in order for a part of this discussion that is highly neglected in modern society. While we often think solely of the sacrament of confession, there is an important connected virtue known as the virtue of penance. This is the virtuous action of repenting of something you have done, which like all virtues is a good disposition to a particular action. And as all the virtues are interconnected, could one truly be a temperate person if one did not have prudence in order to inform when and where to be temperate? So is this virtue connected to all. Taking these connections from Aquinas, with only a short amount of space here, the connection to the theological virtues will suffice. The virtue of penance is connected to the elements of the virtue of faith, whereby we believe in the passion of Christ by which we are freed from our sins. It is connected to the virtue of hope, as we await the upcoming pardon. And it is connected to charity, as we develop a contrary hatred of vice and juxtaposition to our love of God. All virtues have both natural and supernatural dimensions. Aristotle had an idea of prudence, but with Christian prudence, our final end is elevated to heaven which now informs how we make any decision in our life on an entirely new dimensional plane. With the supernatural virtue of penance, we no longer just repent of something we have done to offend another human, but because sin is an offense against God. We break our relationship with the Creator and thus, as the creature must restore this relationship. This occurs in a simple process, which again must not be thought of in purely temporal terms. First, God turns the heart of the sinner. Consider the example of St. Augustine here, as he changes his way of life drastically. The sinner then makes an act of faith in God, and then an act of fear, dreading the just punishment that should come due to the sin. The act of hope and redemption follows, and is finalized by an act of charity as the sinner hates sin as sin and due to love of God, leading to reverential fear. More details as a sacrament. Returning now to the sacrament itself, we shall begin by discussing the effects of the sacrament. 
considering the earlier distinction between mortal sin and venial sin, which was discussed upon briefly, only mortal sin is truly, absolutely speaking, sin, and can even be described as the perfect sin as it totally and utterly kills the soul, coming from the Latin root of the word as something complete and whole, not necessarily good. In mortal sin, there is a turning away from God, which warrants eternal punishment. This is remitted by the sacrament of penance. There is also a turning towards a created good, which warrants temporal punishment, which remains despite the sacrament. These are often seen in what we call vices. Your inclination to sin still remains, despite your restoration of relationship to God. On the other hand, there are venial sins, which are analogous to wounds. Just as the grace living within us is compared to a beautiful woman by many spiritual writers, this beauty is disfigured by venial sin even if it is not blotted out completely. There is a partial separation from God, and this is where the virtue of penance from earlier comes in. The sacrament is absolutely speaking, not necessary here, but the benefits of confession even in this situation are evident. Verbal communication and the graces nevertheless present in the sacrament are imperative and will definitively aid in the conquering of vices in one's life. As an aside, this is where the difference between when we forgive versus how God forgives becomes evident. Total forgiveness on the human part is essentially impossible. There will almost always be some lingering frustration and anger. And of course, we do not actually cause a change within the other person. But with God, He not only totally forgives us of all sins, but gives us the grace to conquer sin in the future. As discussed earlier, there are three key elements to the sacrament of penance, contrition, confession, and satisfaction. Contrition can be defined as the deliberate sorrow for sins which includes the purpose of confession and of making satisfaction for the sin. It is not yet the actual satisfaction, or confession, but merely the intent. In Latin, this word is related to verbs of crushing, breaking, and undoing. Within this context however, there is often a distinction made between attrition and contrition. Attrition is mere fear of hell, which is certainly a sound motivation, but when compared to proper contrition, which is a hatred of sin because of love of God, one sees that there is no longer any worldly motive. This is the ideal to be sought. Contrition should be true, and formal, as opposed to external and pretended, and will have a supernatural dimension, one cannot just do this on your own effort. We see this in how so many sins are appetizing and difficult to actually hate. We must see the world through God's eyes in order to attack sin with true hatred as it deserves. It must be total, hating all sins and not just choosing the ones that cause you the most anguish. And you must amend to resolve not to sin again. Otherwise, this is not true contrition. Then there is the confession itself, which is the telling of the personal sins one has committed after baptism to an authorized priest for the purpose of obtaining absolution. This is where Scripture comes in, the priest has the power to forgive or retain. Thomas Aquinas outlined 16 characteristics drawing from the church tradition to make a true confession, which will be enumerated here but not discussed in detail. A true confession must be. 1. Discreet. 2. Free. 3. Sincere. 4. Courageous. 5. Marked by shame. 6. Sorrowful. 7. Humble. 8. Truthful. 9. Open. 10. Simple. 11. Entire. 12. Accusatory. 13. Manifestive. 14. Secret. 15. Frequent. 16. Prompt. And lastly, there is satisfaction. One can never actually repay what one has done in sin, but nevertheless one is capable of procuring something to God's honor, 
and penalizing oneself with some loss. This must be borne freely, especially if God chooses to send the sinner some additional punishment for the sin, which does happen, there are natural consequences, such as a hangover when one is drunk. There are three primary modes of doing so, which are typically brought up during Lent. These are prayer, fasting, and almsgiving, each of which involve a surrender of a particular dimension of one's life, and thus will serve a better remedy for certain sins. Almsgiving involves the surrender of possessions, which aids in the removal of the concupiscence of the eyes. There is fasting, involving the surrender of physical pleasures, tempering the flesh. And there is prayer, which surrenders the mind and heart to God and tempers the pride of life. Now, why do we receive these often from the priest? In essence, they remind us of the severity of our sin and aid in a guard from future sins. It is a remedy to heal the weakness and break down evil habits, and takes advantage of the merits of the satisfaction that Christ made for all. The Practicals To conclude, a brief discussion of the practicals of confession is in order. Hopefully these practicals make more sense in light of the previous theological explanations of the sacrament. Legally speaking, one must go to confession once a year. However, the ideal is of course to go more frequently, even weekly or bi-weekly. Anyone who does this will similarly advocate for this frequency, and as Scott Hahn once said, his family can even tell when he has not been to confession for more than a few weeks. How much more so will the stain of sin be evident after not going to confession for years? There are eight steps to the sacrament, which are taken now from the USCCB's Guide to Confession. 1. Preparation. The sacrament begins with your own preparation. You must reflect on this stage, and neglecting it will only weaken the effects of the sacrament. In the time of the persecution of Catholics in Elizabethan England, as recounted in the thrilling Reed autobiography of a hunted priest, priests would send those seeking confession back to make a diligent examination of conscience for months. While that extreme is not necessary here, especially if you do not put it off for years, which in that case, a diligent examination for months may indeed be required, preparation is crucial. Beyond the practicality of how long it has been since your last confession, which you will relate in your next stage, there are many specific examinations of conscience. The acronym Polygas is helpful for remembering the seven deadly sins discussed earlier, pride, anger, lust, envy, gluttony, avarice, sloth. There are also examinations with the Ten Commandments, or the Beatitudes, all of which are readily available online. Getting into the frequent practice of a daily exam can further aid this process. 2. Greeting. When you actually enter the confessional, the priest will likely welcome you, and then continue on with the 3. Sign of the cross. At which point you respond with, Bless me Father, for I have sinned, it has been twenty years since my last confession. 4. Confession. And then you continue by detailing your sins. As the Council of Trent explicitly points out, it is necessary to not just say vaguely what you have done, but be as specific with regards to number and kind as possible. For example, if one simply said you upset your friend, but did not point out you killed him, that would not be a true confession. Yet, you do not have to go into the fine details of how you murdered your friend. And if you murdered multiple friends, point that out also, or at least roughly, 700 would be fine instead of 738.5. When you have concluded enumerating your sins, you can indicate this to the priest by saying for these and all my sins I am sorry. 5. Penance. The priest will respond with possibly some advice, and at the very least a penance to be done. This may be as simple as some short prayers, or something more difficult. This should be done, as discussed earlier. 6. Active Contrition. Then, you follow with an act of contrition, such as. Oh my God, I am heartily sorry for having offended Thee, 
and I detest all my sins because of thy just punishments, but most of all because they offend thee, my God, who art all good and deserving of all my love. I firmly resolve with the help of thy grace to sin no more and to avoid the near occasion of sin. Amen. This is absolutely worth memorizing, as it will make the entire process much more seamless. 7. Absolution. The priest will respond with an absolution, or blessing absolving you from your sins, with which you respond Amen. 8. Dismissal. And lastly, go in peace. (laughs) 